Amen. I want to invite you to grab your Bible and turn with me to Hebrews chapter 6, the book of Hebrews chapter 6. If you are looking in the Pew Bible, you ought to find it on page 1279. We've been uh, spending some time over the past couple of weeks just sort of lingering over the resurrection of Jesus. It is um, such a world-shaking event, and it is so central to our faith that it really deserves our attention for longer than one Sunday out of the year. I don't know what it is uh, about just the way I was brought up. It's nothing particularly spiritual, but for some reason, uh, every year when we start getting close to Christmas, I want to start meditating on the incarnation of Jesus several weeks in advance. And then when it comes to Easter, it always kind of sneaks up on me, and then I just want to sort of linger over it for a few weeks afterward. And I want to use uh, a hymn that we just sang as an on-ramp this morning for our reflection on the resurrection. We sang, My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. And the book of Hebrews was written to people who were being pummeled on every side by despair and discouragement, um, by doubts from within and the threat of persecution from without. And we might say, in our sort of colloquial way of putting it, that they were in danger of losing their hope. But that is not entirely accurate because what they were in danger of losing was never their hope. They were in danger of losing their awareness of that hope. We, we sang also this morning in the, in the song Amazing Grace, His word my hope secures. So our hope is secure. Our hope is immovable. It is as sure and as certain and steadfast as Jesus. But sometimes our awareness of that hope sort of fades. And so it is possible to feel hopeless without actually being hopeless. And as we read this morning, I want you to be on the lookout for all of the ways that this passage points us to that certainty, to the rock-solid, unchanging, unwavering guarantee of our hope. It's not, a, it's not a cliche about holding on to hope. It is that we have a hope holding on to us. And this truth would not be true if it were not for the bodily resurrection of Jesus. So let's read together in Hebrews chapter 6. We're going to begin in verse 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of His purpose, He guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, 
having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. We're going to stop there and let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word through which you secure our hope. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would help us to see in these God-inspired words a clearer picture of who you are for us, that you are not just one who has acted on our behalf long ago in the past, but even today, even at this very moment as we are gathered in this room together, you continue to be for us, and that makes all the difference. And so we pray that you would help us to have our eyes opened to who you are for us and what you do for us. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So I, I want you to think with me for a moment about the image that the author of Hebrews paints for us here in the first half of verse 19 where he says, We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. Of course, he tells us this so that we will cling to that anchor. He says, so that we might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. But fundamentally, we need to know this unchangeable fact that we do have a hope. God told his people through the prophet Jeremiah, I know the plans I have for you, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. God says, I have plans to give you a hope. And what the writer of Hebrews is saying, in effect, is that now we're on the other side of that promise. God has given us that hope. It is ours in Christ. It belongs to us. We have possession of it. We have this. Not we will have this. Not we used to have this. But right now, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. And this hope, authentic hope, is not something that comes from within us. It's not something that we have to work up, nor is it something that we have to go out and to procure for ourselves. It, it comes from God. It is a gift that He gives. It is based on His character, His word, His faithfulness. It is the expectation that what God has said will surely come to pass. What He has said He will do, the promises that He has given to us are as sure as the rising of the sun. And even if we are in the midst of midnight and darkness, we know that the sun is coming up. Even if we can't see it, it is sure, it is certain, it is definitely 100% going to happen. That's what it means for us to have hope in the promises of God. And so I want us to glean from this passage three truths about authentic Hope, Because there are so many kinds of false hope and counterfeit hope, but we want to think about what is authentic hope, this hope that God gives to us and that we have in Christ. First thing I want you to see is that authentic hope presumes our weakness. It presumes our weakness. We sang um, in the hymn earlier, When darkness seems to hide his face, in every high and stormy gale, when all around my soul gives way, He then is all my hope and stay. At the very moment when darkness hides His face, and when I'm in the midst of a high and stormy gale, and when all around my soul gives way, then, in that moment, He is, he is my, my hope and stay. An anchor is more precious 
to someone in the midst of a howling storm than to someone coasting on calm waters. If you're in easy waters, you look over the anchor and you say, okay, that's all well and good. But when you're in the midst of high and stormy gale, the anchor suddenly seems a whole lot more precious. And verse 18 describes us as those who have fled for refuge. Apart from Christ, we are storm-tossed, we are vulnerable to the dangers of death and hell, but those who have fled to Jesus for refuge are secure. And this, this weakness, so in Christ we are secure, a separate from Christ we are in danger, we are insecure. That, that sense of weakness does not vanish, it does not go away the moment I put my faith in Jesus. It's not that those who are apart from Christ are weak and those who are in Christ are strong. It is that those who are in Christ recognize their weakness and they boast in it because they find their strength in Him, not in themselves. That's the very thing Paul does in 2 Corinthians 12. He says, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses. For the sake of Christ then, he says, I am content with weaknesses. He did not write those words when he was an unbeliever. He didn't say... I'm, I'm, I'm weak because I'm an unbeliever. He says, I've been walking with Christ for many years, and because of this, I am content with my weaknesses. I am willing to boast all the more gladly of them. And we live in a time and in a setting when both inside and outside the church, this is totally foreign to us. We, we feel the need to hide our weaknesses, to, to keep them concealed so that we can project strength and competence and control. And yet, Paul does the exact opposite of that because he says, I want people to see how weak I am so that they will see that the, the strength and the power doesn't come from me. It comes from Christ. And so we, we want to be seen as having it all together. And yet we declare our hope in Christ and we honor Him not by hiding our weakness, but by boasting in it. And so that is the first thing. Authentic hope presumes our weakness. If we're going to have hope in Christ, then we have to start by acknowledging that point. The second thing I want you to see with me here is that authentic hope is grounded on God's Word, or as Amazing Grace says, it is secured by His Word, by His promise. What the writer of Hebrews does here is he uses Abraham as a test case, as the New Testament writers are so prone to do. They love to use Abraham as an example of God's faithfulness. And what, what the writer of Hebrews does here is he, he points out to us that not only did, did God give Abraham a promise that, he, that would, he would bless him and multiply him, that he would make him the, the father of a multitude, that sort of thing, but that God swore an oath to Abraham as a confirmation of that promise. Now, this can be kind of confusing because in Matthew 5, Jesus tells His disciples not to take oaths. He says, let, let, uh, let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than that comes from evil. So how, how then is it not evil for God to swear an oath to Abraham? Well, the difference is, there, there is uh, several major differences between the oaths that humans swear and the oath that God swears. 
Humans swear oaths because we cannot trust one another to tell the truth, right? Because we know from experience that someone may say they will do something or say they won't do something, but they may, they may go back on that promise. And so we, we make people swear oaths because we're essentially saying, I cannot fully trust you to tell me the truth. And so I am... I'm asking you to put yourself under a higher authority so that my trust is actually in that authority rather than in you. So that's why oaths that, that we swear are often typically reserved for things that, that really, really matter. So if you testify in, in a court case, for example, that could have serious legal or financial consequences, if you, if you were to go and testify in a case that could result in someone being imprisoned, then an oath might be appropriate and necessary in that regard, right? Because the words that I'm saying and the testimony that I'm giving are going to have serious ramifications for this person about whom I'm testifying. On the other hand, if I go and, and borrow a screwdriver from my neighbor and I say, I'll bring it back to you tomorrow, and he says, swear an oath that you're going to bring me back my screwdriver, then one of two things is the case. Either my neighbor has a serious trust issue, in which case I might say, you know what, I'll go ask somebody else to borrow their screwdriver, or better yet, I'll just go to Lowe's and buy one. Or, so either he has a serious trust issue or I have a serious credibility issue because I've obviously done something to give him the impression that I'm not the kind of person who can be trusted to bring back his screwdriver tomorrow. That's the point Jesus is making in Matthew 5 when he says, let what you say simply be yes or no. Under normal circumstances, you should be able simply to give your word and be expected to keep it. That if I say I'm going to bring you back the screwdriver tomorrow, I'll bring it back tomorrow. God, on the other hand, does not swear oaths in the same way that we do. For one thing, there is no higher authority than God by which he can testify. Notice what the writer of Hebrews says there in verse 16. He says, for people swear by something greater than themselves. So if I go to court and I give sworn testimony, I'm speaking under the authority of the court in which I'm testifying so that because I'm under oath, if I say something that is false, if I knowingly lie or bend the truth or say something false, then I am liable to perjury. I am liable to be held accountable by the authority under which I'm giving that testimony. But with God, there is no higher authority to which He can appeal. There's no one who can hold Him accountable. There's no one that He can say, okay, here's the higher authority. I'm going to appeal to them and swear by them so He can only swear by Himself. And not only that, but God does not swear because of His weakness. He swears because of our weakness. So God gave Abraham his oath, not because God was untrustworthy, but because Abraham was untrusting. God made a concession for Abraham's sake. God could very well have said, Abraham, I have spoken. I've given you my word. I've given you my promise that I will bless you, that I will multiply you, that I will make you the father of a multitude. And that's enough, Abraham. But God doesn't do that. He lowers Himself. He makes a concession for Abraham's sake. Notice verse 17. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise 
the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. The reason God gave Abraham the oath was not because God needed some incentive to tell the truth or to keep his promise. It was for Abraham's sake. So that Abraham could be really convinced that what God has promised, he will surely do. And notice that God's oath to Abraham was not only for Abraham's sake alone, but it says there in verse 17, when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise that His purpose is unchangeable, He guaranteed it with an oath. Who are the heirs of the promise? Well, when you read the Old Testament, it seems like it's Abraham's physical, literal descendants. But when you get to the New Testament, you hear Paul say, true sons of Abraham, the true children of Abraham, are not those who are born of Abraham, but those who have faith in Christ as Abraham did. For Abraham believed and it was counted to him as righteousness. So that it is not those who are of Israel who are the descendants of Abraham, but those who are in Christ. So if you are a follower of Christ, the writer of Hebrews is talking about you. You are one of the heirs of the promise. God swore an oath to Abraham thousands of years ago for your sake and for mine. He guaranteed his promise with an oath so that we would be convinced that God's purpose will not change. And that's striking when you think about what it is that God promised Abraham. Because again, when you get to the New Testament, you realize that all of the promises that God gave to Abraham, they were never just about land and physical blessing. The promise that, that comes to the Gentiles through faith, that comes to everyone who trusts in Christ, is that we become the dwelling place of the Spirit of God. We become inheritors of the promise of God. We become heirs to the new heavens and the new earth. These are the promises that God has, gave, has given. And He has sworn so that we will be convinced of the unchangeable character of His purpose. So that truth, the unchangeable character of God's purpose, is one of the foundations of our hope. We have hope because God will not give up on one of His own. And to assure us of that, He has given us a promise and an oath. Verse 18, So that by two unchangeable things, the promise and the oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. So God has given us two unchangeable assurances. It is impossible for Him to lie. And because of that, we can have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. So authentic hope is grounded on God's Word. And then the third thing I want you to see with me is that authentic hope, hope is anchored in God's presence. Authentic hope is anchored in God's presence. And this is the point where we, we really see how significant the resurrection of Jesus continues to be for us today. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood 
and righteousness. And there's a couple ways you could interpret that. Now, to be clear, that hymn is not God-breathed. So we you know, take it with a grain of salt, make sure it is in accord with God's inspired word. But uh, I think let's just, just, let's just go with it and assume that it, it is uh, a truthful summary of what God teaches. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Well, we know what he's talking about when he says Jesus' blood. He's talking about the cross, the death of Christ in our place. But what about the righteousness of Jesus? That's also crucial for our hope. And what I want you to see with me is that the righteousness of Jesus is not only about the sinless life he lived while he was walking on the earth, although that is crucial as well. He would not be a fit Savior if he had not lived a sinless life. But it is also what he continues to do today on our behalf, that our hope is not only because of what Jesus did in the past, that he died that He was raised. Our hope is also in what He continues to do on our behalf. So the second verse of that hymn says this, When darkness seems to hide His face, I rest on His unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. And I think we understand instinctively what it means for an anchor to hold. But what in the world does it mean for an anchor to hold within the veil? It's one of those lines that I grew up singing and had no idea what it meant. Because when you really stop and think about it, a veil doesn't seem all that secure, does it? I mean, if an anchor's attached to a veil, a veil seems like it could be torn pretty easy. But what that hymn is doing is it's drawing from this image here in verse 19. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. So it's not talking about a a veil that's part of a a bridal dress. It's talking about the, the inner place behind the curtain is a reference to the most holy place in the temple, the holy of holies. It's a way of describing the very presence of God. Mark, in his account of the gospel, does this really amazing thing where at the beginning of his account of the gospel, he tells the story of Jesus being baptized. And he he goes into the water and John the Baptist baptizes him and he comes out of the water. And when he comes out of the water, Mark uses this very peculiar word, this word schizo, from which we get the, the schizophrenia and that sort of thing. He says that the heavens were schizoed. They were ripped up in in half from top to bottom. And there was a voice from heaven that said, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. So Mark puts that at the beginning of his account of the gospel. Jesus is baptized. He goes into the water. He comes out and the heavens are ripped in half, whatever that means. And there's a voice from God that says, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Then fast forward to the end of Mark's account of the gospel. Jesus is on the cross. He's now dead. And he says, Mark says that at that very moment, the curtain, the place that that big thick curtain that kept everybody out of the holy holies was schizo, ripped in half. 
And instead of this time there being a voice from heaven that says, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased, there's a voice from Jesus' feet. It's the voice of a Gentile centurion who says, surely this man was the son of God. So the, the entrance into God's presence has been torn in half. Heaven has been opened and the presence of God is now moving out into the world. And so what the writer of Hebrews is saying to us is that that place, that is where our anchor has taken hold, in the very presence of God. And so what the hymn does is it takes those two images from verse 19, a sure and steadfast anchor and a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain and it puts them together. My anchor holds within the veil. It's this really strange but compelling image of of an anchor that has been thrown into the presence of God, dropped at God's feet, and it has lodged itself there. An anchor is only good if it finds some place firm and secure to seize onto. And what the writer of Hebrews wants us to see here is that our hope could not possibly be anchored in a more secure place. That's why he can say that this anchor is sure and steadfast. It is immovable. God's eyes are on it. His purpose is unchangeable. This anchor can no more be shaken than God could cease to be God. And not only that, notice what verse 20 goes on to say. Speaking of the inner place behind the curtain, he says, "...where Jesus has gone." as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, we don't have time this morning to dive into everything the author means by calling Jesus a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. We'll have to save that for another day. But suffice it to say, he means that Jesus is far superior to any earthly priest. What makes Jesus superior? He explains some of that in Hebrews 7. Unlike earthly priests... Jesus does not have to continue making sacrifices day after day. Those earthly priests, the Old Testament priests, they went day after day making the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But He, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, has sat down at the right hand of God. His work is completed. It's finished. And so He sat down because it's done. Unlike earthly priests, Jesus lives forever. That's why there were so many priests, because they lived and they did their ministry and then they died. And then another priest came and he lived and did his ministry and then he died. But Jesus lived and died and rose again and his ministry of intercession on our behalf is unceasing. Look down at chapter 7 verse 23. He says, the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. That's why there were so many priests in the Old Testament, because they died. They all died eventually, and then somebody else had to take their job. Verse 24, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. So the reason we have a sure and steadfast hope is not only because Jesus died and rose again, but because He continues to live and will never cease to live, always making intercession for those who have drawn near to God through Him. And unlike earthly priests, Jesus is superior to them in that He does not only go into God's presence as our substitute, but He goes there as our forerunner. That's what The writer of Hebrews calls him there in verse 20, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner 
on our behalf. In the Old Testament, the high priest would enter the Holy of Holies one day a year, and he would go in by himself, completely alone. One man on one day of the year, and that was it. Jesus, on the other hand, has entered behind the curtain as our forerunner, meaning those who take refuge in Him are guaranteed to follow Him into God's presence. We will go where He has gone and where He is now. Right now, at this very moment, while we are sitting here in Henderson, Alabama, in the throne room of God, in the presence of God, there is seated a human man, Jesus, the God-man. He still has a glorified body. He's not some kind of spiritual thing floating around. He is a man with nail scars in his hands and feet and a, a hole still in his side. And he is sitting there making intercession for us. Every time God the Father looks at him, he is reminded of what he did for us. And so I want you to notice how God describes our hope the same way He describes Jesus. Our hope is like a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. Our hope has entered into the inner place behind the curtain, and that is where Jesus has gone. So Jesus is our hope in the flesh. Jesus is the literal embodiment of our hope. And our hope can no more perish, can no more be cast out of the presence of God than could Jesus. Authentic hope is secure because it is anchored in God's presence where Jesus has gone as our forerunner. Now, I said earlier that it is possible for a follower of Christ to feel hopeless, but it's never possible for us to actually be Hopeless. As long as Jesus is alive and is seated at God's right hand, making intercession for us, we have a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. Nothing can change that. But it is the case that we have to learn to lean on Him all the more. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. So I want to suggest to you a very simple probing question that you can ask yourself to diagnose what it is that you are leaning on. It's a simple question, but it is a question that will be incredibly painful if you, if you seriously, truly sit down and try to answer this for yourself. Here's the question. Is there something in my life that if it were taken away, I would feel hopeless? Not that I would be hopeless, but that I would feel utterly hopeless. Is there something in my life that if that thing or if that person were taken away, I would feel hopeless. I want to encourage you to spend some time with that question this week. It's a worthwhile exercise. And here's the thing. The answer to that question is probably not going to be something that is blatantly sinful. It's probably going to be something very good. Um, maybe it's a relationship with someone very close to you. I mean, when I when I... You know, if you want me to be transparent, when I ask myself that question, the first thing that comes to my mind is Rebecca. If, if God were to take her away from me, I truly believe that I would feel utterly hopeless. So maybe it's a relationship with someone very close to you, a friend or a spouse or some other family member. 
Maybe it's your health or your economic stability, your career, your abilities or talents. Maybe you say, you know, if I, if I, didn't, I didn't feel that I could do my job, I would feel hopeless. I would feel like I don't have any value. Maybe it's your status. Maybe it's your intellect or your national identity. You know, maybe it's that I, I worry that if I were to, you know, if my mind started to slip and I were to lose my ability to remember things, I would feel hopeless, whatever the case may be. Many of those things can be good if we keep them in their proper place, but they will all pass away. And for that reason, they make terrible foundations on which to rest your hope. Um, I was thinking about this this morning as we were on the way to church. Nixon has been... Uh, Every, you know, he, he ha- kind of has these fixations and they change. Sometimes it's blue whales, sometimes it's dinosaurs, sometimes it's outer space. And right now it's, it's Auburn football. And uh, so he's been asking us lots of questions about Auburn fans and Alabama fans. And we have never, we've never, you know, disparaged Alabama fans in our house or anything like that. But somewhere along the way he's picked up something like that. And so he was asking us the other day about, you know, Alabama fans and are they all mean and that kind of thing. And we said, no, they're not all mean. In fact, you, you know a lot of Alabama fans who are nice and they're friendly to you and they're, they're our friends, you know, and we named some of them. Some of them are sitting in this room. And uh, we said, you know, there are, there are nice Alabama fans. He said, are all Alabama fans nice? No, no, there's not. There's a bunch of knuckleheaded Alabama fans. Right? And there's a bunch of knuckleheaded Auburn fans too. It's not about Alabama or Auburn. Right? There's knuckleheads on both sides. There are mean people, uh, unkind people on, on all sides. You can't look at someone on the outside of that superficial thing and figure out what's going on in their heart. And I was thinking about that this morning as I was sort of just ruminating over this passage same is true when it comes to, to hope in Christ. You can't, you can't look from the outside and see that because there are plenty of people who have it all together on the outside. They're healthy and they're put together and they're articulate and intelligent and they have money and all those kind of things, but inside they're absolutely hopeless. And they have every reason to be hopeless because they're not in Christ. And then there are other people who look like they don't have it all together they look like they don't have a whole lot in this world, but they have, they have everything in the world to come. They've laid up treasure in heaven. They have hope in Christ. So the same is true. You can't look on the outside. We're going to sing a hymn of invitation here in just a moment. I just want to leave that thought with you. Where is your hope? Where is it rested Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, we refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. So I'm not here to try to manipulate you or to um, cause you to, to doubt anything or anything like that, but I just want you in your heart of hearts to do some business with the Lord, to ask yourself, where am I leaning? Where is my hope rested? And if it's not rested in Christ, then you can fix that today. All other ground is sinking sand. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you that you are, Lord Jesus, a solid rock that is worthy of us resting our hope and building our life upon you. And I pray that if nothing else, we would walk away today being 
convinced that all other ground is sinking sand and that every other pursuit other than trusting in you is ultimately going to fail and falter and fall apart. And so, Lord, I pray that we would be equally convinced of the certainty and the trustworthiness of the promises that you have given to us. Lord, if there's anyone within the sound of my voice right now who knows in their heart of hearts that they are not really resting their hope upon you, but they're trusting in something else, I pray that they would be convicted um, and that they would be drawn to you. Spirit of God, I pray that you would work through your word and draw us to Jesus. And Lord, for those who are walking with you and perhaps have been enduring some kind of struggle, I pray that they would be reminded and encouraged this morning about the hope that is theirs in Christ. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing together.